Well, we're starting this new series, Jesus Works, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. So if you raise your hand, if you need a Bible, they'll bring one right to you from the back because we want everybody in God's Word. And so don't be shy. Just raise your hand. Gary's got them right over here. And uh, uh, Carlton on this side, we can get a Bible in your hand. If you need it, take it home with you and uh, read it. Matthew chapter 8, we're looking starting at verse 23. We're asking the question, what sort of man is Jesus? How does he work? How do people respond to his power and, and his person? Because Jesus works in amazing ways, and he works with authority and with power over the destructive forces of this world. And today we're looking at two miracles that Jesus did and uh, to help people and two very different responses to them. So he's been with the disciples. He's been doing miracle after miracle, and then he says to them in the middle of the crowd, go get in the boat, we're leaving. And uh, so it says in verse 23, when he got into the, depo- the, into the boat, his disciples followed him. So look how Jesus worked. He's gathered his disciples. He's had, preached the Sermon on the Mount. The disciples have been listening. Then he does miracle after miracle after miracle. There's three recorded in quick succession. He healed a leper. He healed the servant of a centurion, long distance, by the way. And he healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. And the disciples are watching, watching, watching. They're listening. They're taking it in. They're impressed. And it's increasing their belief in Jesus, in his power, and in his authority. And it's causing them to wonder. And then to be certain, he's more than just a a nice person. He's more than a prophet. He's God. And it says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I mean, they don't know this. They've just been in class watching, watching, watching. And now it's, it's you can't say it's their final exam because they're a long way from done. But this certainly was a pop quiz. He didn't give them any warning. Hey, here's what's happening. They just had to be ready. So Jesus gives them some adversity, and he says, how, how are you dealing with this? And what happened to their faith? What happened to their following when it was put under a load? So Jesus said, men, get in the boat. And uh, so they did. And look at it, it says, verse 24. And guess what? There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, and he was asleep. And they went and they woke him and said, save us, Lord, we are, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? See, they had left the shore and they're headed across the lake. This lake is 8.1 miles wide at its widest, and, and they're far enough out there that they're in a committed position. And then this storm comes up, the waves into you know, the wind, and the waves start getting a little roughy, and it's getting choppy, and it's getting worse, and um, the boat is getting swamped. It's being filled with water. In fact, I think I have a picture of the boat. They found one. I, I can't tell you the whole story, but they found this boat in 1986 in shallow water in the Sea of Galilee. They did an amazing job restoring it. It's 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide wide. It's been repaired over and over and over. Dave, this one really needed a renovation. And they, they used 10 different kinds of wood fixing this thing up. And uh, so, you know, it's been patched over and over and over. And uh, can you imagine getting in this with 12 other grown men? So, I mean, you, it would be dangerous in the shallow, calm water, much less getting out in the middle of the lake. I think their lives were in danger before they hardly left. I mean, it reminds me of a rental truck that we, we, we tried to move across the country in. We had three drivers. We drove around the clock from here to Boston. We only stopped for gas and repairs, and it took 17 days to get from here to there. <laughs> I just wish it was a joke. 
So the disciples all get in the boat and they're heading across the lake. And Jesus is so exhausted from preaching and meeting people's need and doing miracles, he's sound asleep in no time. And up comes the perfect storm. I mean, Matthew doesn't tell us, but the picture suggests, you know, they're all in one boat. At least four of these guys are professional fishermen. They've spent their whole life fishing on that lake. But maybe they've never seen a storm this big and they just freak out. We're going to die. We went deep sea fishing a few years back in Costa Rica, and we took along the local pastor that we were working with. And though he lived right there, he had never been out on the water and never had gone fishing. And he got out there, he got sicker than a dog, to tell you the truth. And we tried to tell him, get right to the middle of the boat, look out to the horizon. But instead, he went out right out to the bow, and he curled up in a little ball, and he just kind of gave it all he could and tried to outweigh it. He looked near death most of the time until he finally... About two days later on shore, you know, he finally uh, thought out. Anyway, Jesus is asleep on the bow of the boat, and they wake Jesus up, and they're yelling into the wind, Save us, Lord, we're perishing! Now Mark's account has them say, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, there's a certain, you know, uh, scolding in the tone of those words when they're talking to Jesus. I've got this problem. You've got the power. You've done nothing about my problem. Don't you care about me? You ever prayed that kind of prayer? You don't have to tell me. I know I have before. You know, and if you've never had a problem, you wouldn't know that God could solve them. But he does, and he can't. And God was growing their faith through adversity, and he doesn't take their problem away. He just helps them in their perspective looking at their problem. He doesn't take all your problems away either, but he gives you the power and the strength and the perspective to see your way through. And God never fails us. God is growing them through adversity. Anybody else ever had that experience? Yeah, look what Jesus did. He's so cool. He wakes up. He's sitting right in the middle of his illustration to teach these guys. He had planned this a long time in advance. I know it. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove that in a minute. And this boat is pitching up and down, side and side. And it's in the perfect storm that he's created. And, and Jesus says to them, while this is still going on, why are you afraid? Why are you such cowards? And then the boat is still going like this, and it says, Jesus stands up. <laughs> okay. And then he even takes it to another level. He says to the wind and the waves, hey, cut it out. Stop it. I see you there in the back of the class. Come on, knock it off. And I think these waves went, oh, okay. The wind and the waves, it says, peace be still, and it was gone. They obey, they obey. Do you know why? Because he's God. I mean, the disciples are left wondering, what sort of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're awestruck. Jesus is awesome. What sort of man is it? Well, it's sort of man that's God-fully and man-fully at the same time. He's only one of a kind. He's the only one. So they'd never seen, him before, seen it before. And Jesus looks at them and gives them their grades. Why are you so afraid? Oh, you have little faith. You get a C on this one, boys. I mean, in their tough times, they had forgotten the power of Jesus. They'd forgotten his authority over everything. Oh, you have little faith. I think he's intimating there that he had hoped that in the process of being with him and hearing all his great sermons and seeing all his miracles and being fed, you know, the extra food and all those kind of things, that their faith would be a little greater than that, deeper-rooted faith, higher quality of faith. He was hoping for a faith that in the midst of the storm, in the middle of the test, when you don't know the end of the story, that they would say, God has never failed me yet. He's not starting today. And I can rely on God, even when I don't know how the story ends, even when I can't see how things are going to turn out. 
they would say to themselves, don't fear, Jesus is here. It looks like he's distracted, but he's God, and I can trust my whole life to him. Now, if you're in the middle of a storm today, then take courage from this. Because God hasn't failed you yet, and he's not about to start now. And if you're his and you're doing what he's asked you to do, you're going to have some storms, but he's there with you. After all, Jesus is God. Nothing comes into your life that catches him by surprise. Nothing's greater than the power of Jesus. And God is at work in this world, and he's got a great big plan for the whole world. And the disciples are just this little itty-bitty part of it. You and I have this little bit part. Do your bit part well. God's got a lot bigger plan. He's going to fulfill his plan, and you want to be part of it. It's way bigger than we know. I mean, look at the disciples for a minute. They have followed Jesus because he invited them and because they believe he's got the power. He can be the Savior. He might actually be the promised Messiah, and they thought we need a Savior to set us free from those Roman overlords. <gasps> he's got the power, obviously, the way he speaks, the way he does miracles. I'm putting my hopes in Jesus. He can save us Jewish people from all this tyranny. Now, we know Jesus' larger plan had escaped them. Jesus came into the world to be the Savior. That's true. But he came into the world to save them from a much bigger enemy than the Roman overlords. Jesus came to pay the price for sin, sin that had broken the relationship with God so that boys and girls, men and women, could be made right in God's sight. And Jesus came to offer his salvation and the forgiveness of sin to the Jewish people first, but to everybody. Jewish people had forgotten that when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, make your name great, you will be a blessing to everybody in the world. They thought God loves us more than he loves them. It all belongs to us. We're keeping it for ourselves. Thank you very much. And Jesus came to say, I am moving people from being condemned sinners into a precious son or a precious daughter of God. I'm offering it to every person in the world, men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And Jesus' plan to accomplish this included dying for the sin of the world, therefore conquering once for all that good would triumph over evil. And then he's going to come back from the dead and he's going to leave his followers empowered by God's spirit to be his body in the world, to be his arms and his legs, his hands and his feet, the, 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 the church, and to have them carry on the work of Christ until the whole world hears. Now, disciples aren't thinking about all that. They got this, this little bitty view. You know, Jesus loves us and he's our savior. He's our champion. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to follow him. And we're going to do the same. I know that Jesus had this plan because if you go look at Psalm 107, it's a lot longer than I'm going to read. I'm going to read just one little section. But this was written a thousand years before Jesus was even born into this world. And it's well worth your time, but the theme is found in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. In fact, read it with me. Ready? Let's read this together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
Then in verse 23, it says this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and they staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. That verse is probably in the Psalm four or five times, talking about different situations. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Jesus inspired the people who wrote the Psalms a thousand years before he was born to say, hey, let's put that little paragraph in about that day we're going to be on the lake. I want them to know that it's coming. That way they can be warned. I mean, if they had just, it was an open book test. If they had just read ahead, they would have known, oh, this is what he was talking about. We're pitching. We're up and down. We're staggering like drunken men out here. We're at our wits' end. Cry to the Lord because he's going to be listening. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. You know, that's exactly what we're doing today. I mean, thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Because your love endures forever. And we can trust you even in the toughest times. So the disciples saw the problem. And then they saw the power of God at work in their lives. And they responded appropriately. They responded with awe and with belief. And that's where we want to be too. You running into a storm right now? You ever thought maybe it's a test? What do you want to hear Jesus say when it's over? Oh, you have little faith? Or well done, good and faithful servant? Well, they finally did get across the lake. I mean, Jesus had said, men, we're going to go to the other side, so get in the boat. And nobody said to Jesus, but wait a minute, Jesus, this is our side. That's their side of the lake. We live here. They live there. Nobody said that, but it would have been true. Because this side was Jewish and that side was Gentile. So the disciples, being fully devoted followers of Christ, best as they could, they went and got in the boat. And first Jesus tested the faith of the disciples with the storm. And they responded in awe and belief and they worshiped Jesus. And then he reached out to the Gentile people, the ones that the Jewish people would consider weren't even worthy to hear anything. And among that group of Gentiles, he reached out to the lowest of the low, outcasts. And sadly, the people around them saw the power of God in action, but they didn't respond with awe and belief. They responded with fear and rejection. Look at it, it says, verse 28. When they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that nobody could pass that way. And guess what? They cried out, what do we have to do with us, O Son of God? What do you have to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, this story's in the Bible three times. Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell this story. And uh, Matthew and Mark, or Mark and Luke, just have one demon-possessed man. Matthew has two. I can't explain why. There's one, it's the same story. I know this. I know that my mother was glad I wasn't twins. <laughs> okay? I mean, she said one time, she said, instead of Tyler, we really should call you Typhoon. I said, well, no, we like giving our kids Bible names. How about Tyrannus? 
He's in there in the book of Acts somewhere. Okay, so the people on this side of the lake are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. And this man or these men have been possessed by demons, which cost them everything. It's cost them their mind. It's cost them their family. It's cost them their home. It's cost them their jobs. It's cost them their respect. It's cost them their place in their community. It's cost them everything. They've been forced out of town to live on the streets and out among the tombs in the graveyard. And they have become vicious. And so they've caused people to fear I mean, numerous attempts have been made to restrain them, even with chains, but they bust it out. And they live in this foggy, self-abusive mind. Uh, you know, they're naked and they're screaming out and they're willing to hurt anybody, including themselves. And, uh, and they're lashing out at people and they're not in control of themselves. And these evil spirits have captured their minds and their hearts and they're dangerous. And then along comes Jesus. Now, of course, in our modern world, we, we discount the idea of a real devil or of the demons who do his bidding. But that's to our own peril because they're real. In fact, in Ephesians, Paul said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Darkness is real. The demons and the devil are real. Evil is present in the world, but Jesus is greater Greater who is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, I'm not looking for a devil behind every tree or every bush or a demon in every situation that something goes wrong. I think there's a process where people open the door to sin in their life and they invite evil into their lives. James 1, it kind of explains some of the process. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And that desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So the demons in these possessed men recognize Jesus for who he truly is. God, come in human flesh. King of kings and Lord of lords. And they were petrified of him. And rather than bow before him and, and say, Lord, you deserve the honor and the praise. I am so wrong. I have really hurt a lot of people. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I need your uh, cover in my life. No, they don't say that. They ask for distance and for time because they know Jesus is in charge. Well, Jesus was there to claim and to redeem these two possessed men, men who were created in the image of God, men that Jesus loved and came to this world to die for so they could be set free to live as God had intended them to live. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost at any price. So look what happens, verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out of these men, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And guess what? The whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the water. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, this must have been quite a scene. you got 2,000 pigs rutting and snorting around on this hillside, and you've got these tombs that are out there and these couple of crazies running around in them over there, and they're running around naked, and you can hear them screaming out. And from time to time, I mean, thank God you worked the day shift. 
right? And at least there's a bunch of you who are tending the pigs together, but then suddenly this boat pulls up and this guy gets off and the crazies go running down to see him and you can kind of hear some of their conversation and all of a sudden all of your pigs go berserk and they just race down to the lake. In fact, this old sow just about nearly ran you over because she was taking a straight line there. And the next thing you see is the crazies sitting down with Jesus and somebody gives them a robe and they, they get dressed and they almost look normal. And you look down to the lake and you can see all your pigs are belly up. And you, you know there's going to be hell to pay for this because the owners are going to wonder, wonder, what happened? It was your job to keep their pigs safe. And now they're all dead. And it's not your fault. And suddenly you just bolt to town and you just tell everybody your side of the story. I mean, this is big news flash. And what happened to all of the herd of swine. And everybody in town drops what they're doing. We got to see this. And they go racing out to the cemetery to see for themselves. And look what it says, verse 34. And guess what? All the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Wow. I mean, what? You go, this story always has a twist on the end for me. I always expected the verse to say, when they saw him, they got on their knees and they said, Jesus, please come into our town. We need you to set all of us free. Teach us about God. Forgive our sin. But, but they didn't say that. They were more afraid of Jesus than of the demon-possessed men. The crazies they had put out of town, out of sight, out of mind. But Jesus had just done what nobody had ever expected could ever happen. He had restored the hearts and minds of these crazies, and they now could be reconciled with their family and community. Think of the joy in the hearts of the mothers and the wives and the children of those two men who had been estranged for so long. I mean, Jesus had cost this town a great deal. I mean, 2,000 pigs don't come cheap. And that might have been the biggest moneymaker the entire town had. So it cost them something for Jesus to set these men free. But what price would you put on a soul? How much is one person worth? See, I believe that if you were the only person in the world who needed forgiveness, Jesus would have come to die for you because he loves you that much. But it was costly. It cost something. When you see the power of Jesus at work, instead of being drawn to Jesus for the good that he's done and the lives that have been redeemed, they're paralyzed by fear and the price tag of goodness, and they reject the very one who could have been their savior. A few years ago in Dana Point, we were doing a lot of weddings every year, about 40 or 50 a year in some good years, and a lady called the church, and she really seemed irritated. She got a hold of one of the secretaries, and she said, you know, she says, I'm kind of irritated. I'm not a Christian. My daughter's a Christian, and she wants to be married at your church, and it's so expensive. And so the secretary said, well, oh, your daughter's a Christian. Does she go to church? Yeah, she goes to church, but where she goes, it's one of those box churches. It's not very pretty, and she wants to be married where it's pretty, at which point the secretary, I think, probably stepped over the line, but she said, well, ma'am, Pretty isn't cheap. <laughs> she said, every woman knows that. And the lady goes, click. <laughs> Pretty isn't cheap. And salvation isn't either. It cost Jesus everything. It cost him heaven. It cost him his life. To break the power of sin and evil in your life cost Jesus everything. It did not come cheap. 
Now, I don't know why Matthew doesn't finish this story like Mark and Luke do, but here's what happened next. Remember, Mark only had one person in the story, so it said, as Jesus was getting into the boat to depart, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he, could I be with you? Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which that's 10 cities in that area, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now let's look at how Jesus works, because he's amazing. He came to seek and to save the lost. He was willing to pay any price to help these ones who were lost, had no hope on their own, and Jesus set them free. Jesus is looking for the lost even to this day, and he brings his power and his light to bear to break the hold of evil and darkness and the bondage that comes with it. Jesus doesn't force people to believe in him or to love him or to follow him. But those who love him and follow Jesus, he empowers to go and to tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And this guy in the story got it. He got it. He went home and he shared in his own home and in his own city and in the next one over and the next one over and the next one over. It says he went to all the cities of the Decapolis, 10 cities, and everybody marveled. He's a true disciple. He's a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He responded to the power of God with awe and with gratitude, with belief and obedience. And that's what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. He didn't know everything. I mean, think about this. He didn't know the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't know about the miracles. He didn't know about the healings. He didn't know the other talks that Jesus had given, the parables. He didn't know any of that. He didn't know anything about the crucifixion or the resurrection or the empowering of God's Spirit coming on Pentecost. He didn't know about the church or the new. He had never read a word of the New Testament. He didn't know about the missionaries or the Great Commission or the go make disciples to the ends of the earth. He knew nothing about heaven. None of that that you already know about, but he just did what Jesus told him to do. Jesus had changed his life and he went to tell the story. How good is God? How much the Lord has done for you? How he's shown mercy to you? Jesus works in amazing ways. And you have a choice. You can see the power of God and you can reject it because of the fear that it causes in your heart and because of the loss of control that you have to give to Jesus to say you're in charge. Or you can see the power of God and be filled with awe and appreciation and go and tell what Jesus has done for you. It's kind of the two choices. And Jesus is amazing. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your word to all of us on this Mother's Day that you've got the power to mend things that are broken, to heal things that have died, to give life where there is no life anymore, to redeem and to restore and to make things right. And you are willing to teach and encourage and then even test your followers to be sure our commitment is true and valid and authentic and that we are with you in the boat. So even in the storms of our lives, I pray that you will give us the the fortitude, the courage, the ability to remember all that you've done for us in the past. You've never failed us yet. You've taken us into some pretty big challenges. You've put some, some obstacles in the path that we've had to say, are we going around it? Are we going to remove it from the path? How do we do this? 
that you've kept us walking with you each and every step of the way. And so we just want to continue to do that as individuals and as a church to keep our eye on Jesus and to be fully devoted to you because you are wonderful. You are the Lord, and we follow you. Amen.